Hey, we uh, have been in our series uh, called Live It um, now for quite some time. And in fact, we, we looked at the last chapter in the Gospel of Mark. That's the, the book of the Bible we've been studying. Um, and uh, we, we looked at that last week, ended it last week. And uh, I just want to, today, as we put a wrap on things, is sort of look back over the scope of, of the book and, and talk a bit about this, this theme that we put on this, this series called Live It. Um, and so if you want, you can go to Mark 14. I'm going to read from Mark 14, and verse 22-ish is where I'm going to be at this morning. I'm actually going to read it from a different translation, so, but if, if you're trying to track me and follow along, that's where I'll be at here uh, in, in a little bit. Um, some of you know the name Joe Namath. Uh, Joe Namath is a, a pretty famous uh, football player, quarterback, uh, played for the New York Jets back in the day. Um, and he was one of those, uh, well, he, he was the guy who made this provocative, outlandish, brash guarantee. Uh, he, he, uh, he made this guarantee that his team, the New York Jets, would beat the Baltimore Colts. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know anything about football or don't give a rip about football, uh, the Colts were the team of the day and the Jets were the team that was supposed to get beat in this title game that would later be uh, called a Super Bowl. And, uh, and, and Broadway Joe, which was his nickname because he was living in New York and he was kind of an outlandish kind of guy, um, uh, he made this guarantee that the New York Jets would win. And people were shocked. That, you know, the, the newspapers picked it up like, man, are you, you're kidding me. You're guaranteeing a win. And, uh, and yeah, that's what Namath did. And the game was played. And if you, if you uh, I won't ask for a raise of hands who was there and watched the game. But uh, the Colts won 16 to 7. And there's this iconic film footage of Namath running off the field. He's got his finger in the air. And he's on the number one because he, he's a winner. They won. His bold claim came true. His guarantee was, uh, was delivered. And uh, there's something about that, especially in sports, that uh, it happens quite a bit. Uh, uh, there's these guarantees that are made, and oftentimes there's, there's, they're, they're excused. Those guarantees are excused because, man, if you can deliver on it, if you can come through, if you can follow through on your guarantee, then, I mean, you'll hear sports commentators say, well, you know, yeah, he, but he backs it up. He, he, he can, he, she can do it, and so they can excuse these outlandish claims. And, and it isn't just sports, although there are, again, there are some, some guys who are pretty flamboyant and, and say some pro- provocative things like Muhammad Ali was not a shy guy, um, said, you know, I am the greatest. Uh, but even in business, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, I mean, when, when Apple was first going, getting going, he, he made this, uh, this sort of this prophetic statement, not in a biblical sense, but in the business sense, that he was going to reinvent, he was going to reinvent the way the world listens to music. He was going to reinvent the way that people watch TV. Um, and, um, and, and Apple obviously put out products and, uh, and the way people watch TV and listen to music is, uh, is quite different. I mean, years ago, I had one of my kids for Christmas wanted a record player. And I remember saying, why do you want a record player? I said, well, I, it's kind of retro, Dad. I mean, they have like these big discs. And, um, and like, it's, it's, like, it's kind of cool. And I, I remember, yeah, I mean, some of you remember like record stores, you know, Tower Records. You walk in and you had all these records everywhere. And, uh, and it was just a, it was a different world. And that whole industry has been reinvented. Jobs came through. He delivered on the promise. And there's something about our society and our culture that responds to that. We, we live in a society that, that, that values, that in some ways idolizes winners, 
and, and, and respects him and holds him up. Uh, here's a, a short little excerpt from an article that speaks about this. Uh, this, this, this author writes in this article, ours is a win-lose culture. The ethos of our society invites, motivates, and encourages us, especially if we are middle class, to be winners in life. We live in an age of executive game players, superstars, Nobel Prize winners, celebrities, and successful entrepreneurs who have captured our imagination and attention. We all seem to feel the pressure to win at something, sometime, somewhere. In such a culture, there seems to be no room for anyone who fails, whether in sports, at the office, in the classroom, or at home. We like winners. And not long ago, a columnist wrote a, uh, uh, a, a, this, this short article and really dared to suggest to, uh, to the readers that, you know, it might be a good thing for our kids to experience failure every now and then. It actually might be, uh, I mean, I know it, in some ways it, it, it kind of pops our little self-esteem bubbles, and uh, we all like to get the trophy when we participate, but this columnist was saying that, you know, I, there's actually some important lessons learned in failure. And it, parents, you should allow your kids to fail every now and then. Uh, this, this columnist got responses, 700 responses, 700 angry responses. Uh, one, one respondent said, I set to win in everything I set out to do. I hate to lose. I loathe to lose. Losing is depressing for me. If I can win at something, if I can't win at something, I don't do it. I will never lose. Which is awesome until you lose, right? <laughs> I mean, what do you do when you make the bold guarantees and you say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to succeed at this. Maybe you even feel like you've got some strength. You've got something to bring to the table here. You've got something in you. There's some, there's some wisdom. There's some talent. And as you look ahead, you say, this is something I'm good at. This is something I will succeed at. You can count on me. And, and what do you do when you don't deliver? I mean, what do you do when you're so secure in yourself or so, so, um, so you feel so strong about your, your, your success, potential success in an area, what do you do when you don't deliver, when you can't back it up, when you collapse like a failure, when the flashing neon sign is right in front of you and it says, failure, failure, failure? Where do you go in a win-lose culture, when winning is valued, when we all realize, we all know, we're going to fail. We have failed. And what better book, what better gospel to speak to this whole topic of, of when it comes to our spiritual lives and experiencing failure than the, the gospel of Mark? We, 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 we learned early on that this gospel is actually a collection of sermons, that the thoughts that came from Peter's sermons. Uh, Mark was a follower, a well, well, you know, disciple of Jesus who traveled with Peter, and he was in Rome. And so th this particular gospel is the one gospel that paints the disciples in the most negative light. And it's because Mark was listening to Peter talk about his life. And Peter was very transparent and vulnerable and honest about his failures. 
And as we have uh, attempted to sort of put a theme to this whole series, we called it Live It, because that, that is the call. Jesus saying to his disciples, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me. Come walk away. Come live the life. Discipleship has the destination. I want you to, to live like me, become like me, and, and, and live out the mission, as I'm going to show you how to do it. So we want to live it. And living it, living it is, is, is great when it's popular, I mean, in the first half of the book, I mean, think about this for a moment. The, the Gospel of Mark begins in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, voice in the wilderness. The, the, the Gospel of Mark ends in the wilderness. We, we talked about that last week. The women go to the tomb, they see it's empty, and they're fearful, frightened, and bewildered. That's where the original Gospel ends. It, it's, it's this wilderness of fear, like, what is going on? Which is what happens in the wilderness, right? What is happening? What's going on? And the first half of the book is rising popularity. And I think it's relatively what's well, easier to live it when there's rising popularity. When there's declining popularity, then really the challenge is, is in front of us. Are, are we going to live this? And that, the original receivers of this gospel, the church in Rome, was on the declining side. They, you know, they'd gone up the hill of popularity. They, they passed through the summit. Now they're on the other side. And the church is being persecuted by Nero. Now, are you going to live it when it's difficult? When the pressure is on, are you going to stay with Jesus? And, and who else to speak on this subject than a guy named Peter? Who in like Joe Namath-like fashions? I guarantee it, especially speaking to Jesus. Jesus, I'm your guy. I'm, we're, you can count on me, Jesus, I mean, when the bullets are flying and people are running from their lives and you're looking over your shoulder and wondering who's going to be there, you're going to see Peter the Rock. I mean, he's saying you can go to the bank on it. But what we find is that Peter, Peter collapses in failure. I want to read this story for us. I'm going to read it from a, a paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson called The Message. It's uh, Mark 14, verse 22 is where I'll pick it up. And then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, fast forward a bit and jump to verse 66. I'll tell you when I do that. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, or maybe you just want to just let yourself fall into the story. Just listen, close your eyes, imagine, however you best listen. Here's Peter's story. And the context here is, begins with the Last Supper. In the course of their meal, having taken, having taken and blessed the bread, Jesus broke it and gave it to them. Then he said, this take, this is my body. And taking the chalice, he gave it to them, thanking God, and they all drank from it. He said, this is my blood, God's new covenant poured out for many people. I'll not be drinking wine again until the new day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. They sang a hymn and then went directly to Mount Olives. Jesus told them, you're all going to feel that your world is falling apart and that it's my fault. There's a scripture that says, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will go helter-skelter. But after I'm raised up, I will go ahead of you, leading the way to Galilee. Peter blurted out, even if everyone else is ashamed of you when things fall to pieces, I won't be. Jesus said, don't be so sure. Today, this very night, in fact, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He blustered in protest. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. All the others said the same thing. 
And then Jesus and the disciples, they go to the Mount Olives, and, and then there's the, the, the prayer in Gethsemane, and Judas then comes and betrays uh, Jesus. He's arrested and taken to the, the leaders, and Peter's in the courtyard. That's how I'll pick it up in verse 66. Uh, while all this was going on, Peter was down in the courtyard. One of the chief priest's servant girls came in and, seeing Peter warming himself there, looked hard at him and said, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. He denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out on the porch. A rooster crowed. The girl spotted him and began telling the people standing around, he's one of them. He denied it again. After a little while, the bystanders brought it up again. You've got to be one of them. You've got Galilean written all over you. Now, Peter got really nervous, and he swore. I never laid eyes on this man you're talking about. And just then, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said, before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. He collapsed in tears. He made a bold guarantee. Jesus, I'm your guy. You can count on me, thick and thin. I mean, Jesus, I mean, if you're like the president, I'm your secret service agent. The bullets are flying. I'm jumping in front of the bullet. I'm going to take it for you. Yet when the bullets started flying, Peter was flying, disassociating himself from his Lord. Now, you know, I, I grew up reading this story quite a bit, and maybe this is the first or maybe second time you've heard this story. And, and you know, sometimes you come to the conclusion, and so that's why you don't make bold claims. That's why you don't say provocative things. In fact, sometimes you might even say, that's why you never go out and you never make these vows or these commitments because you know you're, you're going to fail. Don't do it. Um, and and I, I just, I think that in a lot of ways, I think that Peter's heart in this situation, this is a classic, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know Jesus says that in Gethsemane when they, when they keep falling asleep, when they're praying. But I think at this moment, the spirit of Peter is, I want to stand firm. I want to stick with Jesus, stay with Jesus. I want to live it. But the flesh is weak because when the, when the heat is cranked up, Peter collapses. He collapses in tears because he knows he's a failure. The flashing neon light is flashing in front of him. And he sees, he knows that he's blown it. He hasn't come through. So I, I actually celebrate that this is his heart. Now he, he, he does fail, but I think it would be a mistake. In fact, I'm just going to put some, uh, just some, a couple takeaways up here on the screen. Uh, our takeaway here isn't to stop making commitments. I think we look at something like this, we see our failures, maybe you're here today, and you look back in your life, and you see a, there was an event in your life, maybe it was just, it was just to you it's a large failure, and, um, and, and, and you're, perhaps that failure is something that you look at and go, see, this is why I will never have the relationship with, with God that like, others have, because of this huge thing. I mean, I know God loves me, but it kind of feels like it's at a distance. And yet there's others of you in the room who it's just the slow accumulation of disappointments and failures over time. They sort of pile up like snow that make us feel like, like you know, I, there's, there's no way I can engage in the life uh, that, that Christ has called to the way that others can because of, of how I've fallen short. And, and when it comes to commitments, I don't want to make a commitment because, you know, I just, 
I won't keep it. I'll fall short. And I just want to say to you that the failure to make commitments actually can, can, can lead you to spiritual laziness. It can lead you to a point where you, you never stretch yourself to grow. To say that I will, I, I'm not going to make commitments. What does it say about us if we will only commit to things that we will succeed at? What it says about us is that there's pride. I will only do things. We all laugh and chuckle at the guy who wrote into the editorials and say, I will do nothing unless I can win at it. What does it say about us if we will only commit to the things, only do the things that we know that we can achieve? It tells us that we so want to avoid failure because there's this thing called pride. Peter, Peter, I mean, this guy was, was brash. He was, I mean, I think you can safely say he was a, a, a blabbermouth. I mean, he just, when he doesn't know what to say, he just says something because he needs to fill the void. You know, no one's saying anything. I better say something. But if you look at him in this, in this situation before the crucifixion, and then you look after, what you see is a guy who's completely transformed. After his failure, he didn't land in a place of saying, I'm going to stop making commitments. We, we looked at this last week, that, that Jesus at the tomb says to the women at the tomb, you know, tell my disciples, including Peter, to meet me in Galilee. One translation puts it, tell my disciples and Peter, meet me in Galilee. Why would he single out Peter? Because of the collapse because we'll disqualify ourselves. And what Jesus is saying, no, even after this, this epic, fatal, what you determine as a fatal flaw, this epic collapse of failure, meet me in Galilee. I was talking to a, a young woman last night at our 6.30 service, and she came up after the service, and she pulled back her sleeve, and on her arm she had tattooed Ann Peter. Now, um, I said, well, how long have you had that? I said, about a week. Um, I was, it was... This, it's the only time at St. Alliance, I think, that Bible studies have inspired tattoos. <laughs> in, in her Bible study, her Bible study leader, his name is Trent, we're talking about this passage where, where Jesus says that. Tell my disciples and Peter, meet me in Galilee. And the light just, just man, went off in her head. Peter didn't go to Jesus and say, forgive me. Didn't. Jesus initiated Jesus initiated the restoration, even after a brutal collapse of character. And that grace was extended, and, and Peter. Some of you, some of you need to get a tattoo. <laughs> it's the first time from this platform a pastor has ever recommended a tattoo. <laughs> because you disqualified yourself. You've believed the lie from the pit of hell that failure means I can only come so close. Failure means that there's some sense of disqualification. Listen to a guy whose sermons until he went to his death on a cross. Who, who, there's life after failure, church. 
So the, 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 the lesson is, is not stop making commitments. The lesson is lean in and keep following after Jesus. Peter, here he is in the courtyard. A teenage servant girl is putting a little peer pressure on him. He's crumbling. He's folding. Then go to the book of Acts, and he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin after Pentecost, filled and empowered with the Spirit, and the screws are being put, in, put on here. With a teenager, he crumbled. What's he going to do with the leading religious authorities of the day? He stands up and says, you know what, guys, this is a fouler paraphrase, guys, um, you know, we're going to do what God thinks, not what man thinks. Transformation. Over here, he's this guy who's just boldly guaranteeing, Jesus, I'm your guy. You can count on me. And then he's writing in his epistle and he says these words, you know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Is he just, like, he was meditating one night and came with that idea? No, it's his life. He understood that over here was arrogance, and there was this opposition that Jesus was pushing back, but God esteems the humble and the contrite. That's who God admires. Peter went from there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's falling asleep. He, he's, 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 before that, he's, he's blabbering out. Over here, he's writing, you know, be self-controlled and pray. How did he get from there to here? With an invitation from a God who knew full well his failures, actually predicted he would fail, and still said to him, come join me in Galilee. You're still part of this. In fact, you're a pretty huge part of this. And it took some steps, courageous steps on Peter's behalf to recommit and follow. So our, our takeaway is not to stop making commitments. That, that, that leads to the spiritual laziness. Uh, a second takeaway is, is this one. <clears throat> the potential of failure can wean me from independence and grow dependence on Jesus. The very fact that you commit to something that you know is bigger than yourself, the fact that you know you, you might not be able to fully uh, commit and, and deliver on this takes you from a place of self-reliance and a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps approach to life to, to this point where you're leaning in and you're praying and you're asking God to help you. That's a good place to be. Over here, this is a dangerous place to be. It's, it's independence. It's isolation. It's I can do this on my own. Again, it's pride. Over here, it's I can't do this on my, on my own. Jesus, I need your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Empower me with your spirit. It's embracing, knowing full well that there will be failure along the way. But embracing a lifestyle of repentance as you walk in the way of Jesus. I've, I've got many issues. One of them um, uh, from my past, I, I worked for United Parcel Service for about nine years in San Francisco. A lot of you know that. Um, I, you know, I, I, went to, I went to school. I had no idea I was going to be a pastor and um, I was working for UPS, and you know, it was San Francisco Teamsters Union, labor environment's pretty intense, and I, I look back now, and I said, that, that was my seminary. I know it seems odd to say that, but I really feel like that was my seminary. That's where I learned leadership. That's where I learned life. Um, but I, when I was working for United Parcel Service, my parents are missionaries. I grew up, you know, memorizing Bible verses, and my parents are still overseas in China, and I was living in San Francisco, and I was working in this, this pretty intense work environment, UPS. And uh, they, they spoke a different language there. It was, you know, it's a, it's a trucking company. Uh, they spoke trucker. Uh, and um, I want to make sure I enunciate that very carefully. Uh, they spoke trucker. And I, I want you, 
I learned trucker fluently. I, I mean, I, I, I spoke the language very well Monday through Friday. I was good at it, fluent. Now, I, I went to work really early in the morning, like five in the morning. I get home eight, you know, sometimes nine o'clock at night. It was, uh, it was a great place to work, but it was a lot of hard work. And, um, and I remember feeling the, just sort of the, the weight and all weekend long, I'm wondering, is this a good thing to tell your church that you struggle with? Um, but this is part of my story. Uh, I, I felt the weight of this. That you know, I, I remember a verse I memorized as a kid. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Huh. Do you know you can see someone's heart just by listening to them? Which is why the Bible says don't talk. Right? It's probably not the real reason why the Bible says don't talk. Don't talk. But you, you, you just listen to someone talking, you see their heart. So I knew people could see my heart if they only knew that verse. And I, I just felt the weight of that. I felt, I felt the conviction of that. And, and I, so I've tried to change. I'm, I'm going to change. I'm going to learn the old language. I'm going to go back. And, and I tried, and I was getting nowhere. And I, I remember one time having to sit down, my wife, Trina, and uh, say, I, I need your help. I, I need you to pray for me. Here's what's going on. I speak trucker, and man, I'm way too fluent. And, um, and I don't think she was completely surprised, um, but she began praying for me. Now, it didn't change overnight. It was a slow process, actually, of, of years of... Um, of realigning my heart. That was just one area, realigning my heart with, with Christ. Now, my, my, interesting, my parents go to the five o'clock service. This was new news to them last night. So they're, they're in recovery somewhere. But I, I, was, I was trying to just, I needed to grow in this area, and I knew it, I knew it needed to change. Um, and it, it became, I embraced a lifestyle of repentance. Here's what I mean by that. When you hear the word repentance, maybe you think, you know, big tent revival and like, you know, hey, once every once in a big church service and everyone repents. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think actually what we really need is to embrace a lifestyle of rep- repentance daily. Repentance, as we defined it in this series, is a change of heart, change of mind, change of direction, change of affections, change of thinking, realigning my way and my, my life in the way of Christ. It's turning towards Him. So embracing a lifestyle of repentance was at night reflecting on my day and realizing this is where I, I, I messed up and I'm just going to keep turning because this is what my heart wants. I want to be transformed. I want to I live it. But knowing in making my commitment to live it, there was failure, lots of failure along the way. And, and so if I'm going to do it on my own, it's going to be a pull myself up by my bootstraps, a self-reliant approach to living versus a leaning in, a dependent lifestyle. And when you do that, you, you, you grow. You're transformed because you're leaning on the one who has the power to change you and wants you. He's calling you to be with him and to, to live with him. Now, the beginning of this year, we, um, you know, we had this, this cloth that's on, on the cross over here. We, we had this thing laid out all across. If you were here, remember, we, we talked about, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And, and we put 
seven things we were committing to. I'm gonna put them up on the screen up here. Um, I, I think this was like January 3rd or January 4th we did this. And we said, here's the things we're to commit to. And we're not committing to these things so that God will, will like us or love us more because he already loves us. He already likes us. We're his sons and daughters, right? So this is not about trying to perform for God. This is just embracing Discipleship has a destination, so we're, we're saying these are habits that will help us get pointed in the right direction. So don't see this as, well, oh, this is just you know, rules. And it's not about rules. It's about pursuing holiness, which means holiness is to live a life a cut above, not in a religious sort of angry way, but just sort of in a way that more resembles who Christ is. And we know we can't do that without the fullness of his spirit. So we need the baptism of the spirit, be filled with the spirit. Uh, and, and that allows holiness to, to grow in us. We want to be faithful in private and public worship. We, we, what we said is that, that the weekend is the culmination of a personal life of worship. So we get to do it together. We've been doing it all week long. And, uh, and, and it happens in a lot of different ways. Yes, reading my Bible. Yes, praying. But obedience is a huge part of worship. Uh, immersing yourself in scripture, understanding that this is God's word, that his voice is what inspired, it's God breathed, the Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures. We wanna commit to community. We don't wanna live the isolated life. We wanna love our neighbors. We want our neighbors to say, you know what? There's light there, there's flavor there in that house next to mine. And we wanna practice generosity. Yes, we wanna give our tithes and offerings, but we also wanna give our time. We wanna be people who have a generous spirit. We don't, wanna, we don't want stingy souls. Now, um, we saw this list, and in the beginning of the year, we, we, if we committed to this, we put our name over here on this, on this cloth. And some of you are looking at that list going, man, I, I remember that January 3rd, I, but January 4th, uh, I forgot it. Um, <clears throat> some of you are going, uh, I, I wasn't here, uh, and, and that, that's okay. But here's the reality. My guess is that, uh, that none of us have, have kept that perfectly well. So in fact, I was talking to some after 8 o'clock service because what we're going to do, uh, as I get wrapped up, team's going to join me out here. We're going to continue worshiping. And we haven't, we haven't stopped worshiping all morning long. And we're going to continue worshiping. And I, I, I'm going to invite people who weren't here, if you want to come up and you want to commit to these things because you want to keep growing, you can put your name on, on this cloth. We've got some space up here for you. Or, and by the way, one person told me, uh, you know, in January I heard that message and I said I'm not signing my name because I know I won't be able to do it. I can relate to that. But then again, I want, to, I want to be stretched. Not in a legalistic fashion, but in a way that leads me closer to Jesus. So maybe you committed to these things. You said, I'm going to live it. And maybe you have to hit the reset button. And maybe you want to come up here as we continue to sing and pray or pray silently in your pew. Maybe you want to come up and put your name down again because you're resetting. You know what the reset button is, right? Even on those appliances, those things where, or as a, a plug, it stops working, it's not functioning, you just push the button. God sent us his son, his gracious son who offers to all a reset button. Grace, forgiveness, a fresh start, even for what we believe to be the most tragic of failures. You are not disqualified. You are his son, his daughter. He will never, ever, ever give up on you. Doesn't matter if you had an abortion. Didn't, doesn't matter 
If you've been divorced, not once, twice. Doesn't matter if you had an affair. Doesn't matter if you spent time in prison. Doesn't matter if you have a record, rap sheet. Doesn't matter that you were addicted to something or you're struggling to be freed from something you're addicted to. He never gives up on you. Because he says to you, I want the disciples to come to Gal and Peter. And he invites us to live it. He invites us to live, knowing full well we will need his help. In fact, he's so expected that we'll need his help that he sent his spirit to empower, to comfort, to talk to us and guide us into all truth. So let's live it. I'm going to pray here in a second. When I get done praying, the team's going to join me out here. And as we worship, again, if you want to come up and put your name on the cloth, you can do that. You don't have to. Maybe it's a prayer, a private prayer in your pew where you're hitting the reset button. Maybe it's, I, I, man, I need to make this more public for myself. Listen to how the Spirit guides and let's respond to him. Let's pray. So Lord, this morning, we turn our eyes on you the author and perfecter of our faith. You wrote our story. You're the one who redeems our story. And today we come to you and we thank you that you were sinless, you were perfect. Receive our worship, I pray in your name. Amen.